I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long-term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Air conditioning, heating, lighting, computers, phones, TVs, appliances. Even the construction itself contributes to buildings' energy usage. Buildings now account for nearly 40% of global energy consumption. You've probably heard of net zero as a solution to combat high energy consumption. No, not net neutrality or the net zero internet service provider, but net zero buildings. Now what does that even mean? This is Spaces Podcast, where we aim to elevate the appreciation and understanding of the spaces we occupy every day. Hello, my name is Demetrius. This is Michelle. Hey everyone. This is Jason. Hey guys. And you're listening to Spaces Podcasts. All right, Michelle. Have you ever wondered what your carbon footprint is? I can honestly say with a resounding no. <laughs> Jason, have you ever wondered what your carbon footprint is? No, and I usually hate the discussion about it because then it gets into electric cars and everything else and it's even worse. So <laughs> not usually. I know it's bigger than most. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, uh, we're going to look at our carbon footprint. Found this cool website. Um, Cotap.org, C-O-T-A-P.org, and they have this cool calculator. You can find out your carbon footprint, and uh, when I put mine in, I had, let's see, 
How do I want to do this? Do I go to highest to lowest? Yeah, I'll go lowest to highest. Lowest to highest. So, so y- you? Yeah. So, so me. Because you being... drive like a two foot by two foot car. Like, how does this work? Yes. And works from home. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a smart car, and I work from home. Uh, so my carbon footprint was eight point two eight tons. Point two eight tons. Okay. And, yeah. and let's just for the for the audience's benefit, the things that are take being taken into account are yeah. car travel air travel, and your home, which really is just what sort of heating source are you using? Yeah, so this this calculation's a little more generic. Some You can find different ones that get more specific and into sort of finite details, but this was for our purposes of time. <laughs> this worked out well for us. So mine came in, taking all of that into account, car, air travel, and home, mine was 828 Uh, tons of carbon emission um, that i'm contributing to the world okay second place is that do we know like an average no look that up let's google it yeah there you go so while while michelle's googling the average second place was michelle and her usage who's the uh the jet the jet setter of the group her usage was 27.24 tons um annually oh that's like three times as much as you yeah so this is all annually so she travels a lot more for work uh and does a lot of trips uh, for fun what was yours demetrius 8.28 interesting (laughs) did you find the average well a quick google search of average carbon footprint per person okay the first result is the average annual carbon dioxide emissions per person they found was 20 metric tons compared to a world average of 4 tons. But the floor, below which nobody in the U.S. can reach no matter a person's energy choices, turned out to be 8.5 tons. Interesting. With that in mind, we go to the... The pig? <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't like that source. So... Ignore, ignore all of that. So where did I come in comparison? So, go, go. so 8, 27, and what am I at? 40.8. Damn right. <laughs> <laughs> so Jason uh, goes in. And the reason I think you travel a lot for work. Yeah, I have you, a lot of trips and then for hockey and then Yeah, even though you, vacation. you uh vehemently exclaimed in several episodes that you do not like traveling. I hate it. Yeah. No, I hate it. Yeah. I truly hate it. Yeah. Uh, but you do have to do it a lot for work. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, so that's, uh, that's kind of our missions in the, in the room, uh, for the listeners, definitely check out yours and see, see where you're at. Um, and that kind of <laughs> I want to know what the average is. And, uh, that'll lead us right into our conversation today. We're discussing net zero and just kind of a quick synopsis of what net zero is. Uh, it's basically... We're talking about energy usage and sort of the carbon emissions that we generate um, from our buildings, which I believe is 40% of the emissions uh, in the world come from buildings. So what we're talking about is residential and commercial buildings that um, with net zero designed, uh, they greatly reduce energy needs through efficiency gains, such as the balance of energy needs. Uh, that can be supplied with renewable technologies. And ultimately, they're trying to 
meet energy requirements um, from low-cost, locally available, non-polluting, renewable sources, as well as hopefully generating more electricity than they use so they can sort of sell back to the grid. So that's sort of a general idea. And we actually have a guest that came in today to, to help us out with this in case... I that was looking at me disgusted when, I said, when you said 40 tons. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> in, in case I uh, screwed this up. Our next guest is a senior consultant and account manager for the Southern California region of EI companies. Her DNA lies in energy efficiencies of buildings. She specializes in Title 24, Part 6, California's Energy Code, and is a certified energy analyst. She works with production builders, architects, utility companies, and manufacturers from design through construction. She consults on energy modeling, MEP engineering, lead for homes, CalGreen quality assurance, and HERS inspections. She sits on the board of directors for CABEC, the California Association of Building Energy Consultants. She was the guest speaker for the BIA of Orange County's Net Zero is Around the Corner event, and she is stoked on the future of the building industry. Please help me welcome Kelly Liu. <laughs> Kelly, tell us a little bit about your background um, and EI, uh, Energy Inspectors. Yeah, sure. So um, EI companies, we are a consulting firm and we specialize in Title 24 energy modeling, mechanical, electrical, plumbing, engineering, HERS inspections, QA, also known as quality assurance inspections, and green programs such as Cal Green, LEED, Build It Green, Air Pl- Indoor Air Plus, Energy Star. So we run all those programs as well. Okay. And then a little bit about your background. You were saying uh, you had an interesting route to get to where you are now. <laughs> yeah, I, I was born in Oakland, California, uh, in the dirty 30s, some call it. <laughs> and I, so I was born and raised there. And then I went to college at UC Santa Barbara, where I studied environmental studies. And uh, I I did a bunch of soil research uh, in which I hung out in dirt pits and <laughs> played, with, uh, <laughs> played with soil to determine soil horizons. And then while I was in school, I interned for a real estate development firm, investment and development firm. And I, I interned there for about a month before they offered me a position there. And oh, wow. so I became a development specialist. Uh, they built the first lead building in Isla Vista. It's freaking beautiful. Huh. And then they developed uh, a auto camp, which has Airstream trailers and you can rent them out like a hotel. Wow, that's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, and then after that, I... Discovered that cool bands like the Melvins and they don't go to Santa Barbara. Yeah. <laughs> so I kept finding myself down in San Diego. Um, and so I figured, why not just move down here? So I moved down to San Diego and I was a landscape designer for about a year uh, because I know how to look at soil and determine um, what plant should go there. And uh, also, you know, I basically created outdoor bougie spaces for <laughs> for homeowners. Um, let's be real here. And then after that, I uh, 
landed this great opportunity at EI companies. I didn't even know that this position existed yeah. um, until I applied for another position and they told me I'm overqualified, but they have this energy consulting position that they think oh. I'd be a good fit in. And here I am four years later. Wow. Very cool. Right Maybe on. she knows the average. Yeah. Google Kept... results is, is not helping us. Is it all over the place? It's all over the place. Okay. I have no idea what the average is. I like that the average was above mine, so the first one that Whatever, you know, so man. Let's, let's go with that. We should make a post on Reddit and ask people. Yeah. It, it seems like most of the sources are saying 16 and a half oh, per yeah. person for the United States. And okay. so obviously every country is different, but the average American, they're saying is 16 and a half. Okay. So Jason and I are both over that. You're well below that. Yes. I'm over it really only because of my air travel. Yeah. Air travel. So well, how many miles a year are you driving, did you say? On average, about 12,000. But I also drive- That's it? it? I also drive a diesel. Rover's Do you a use diesel? biofuel? No. Oh, she doesn't okay. even know what that is. <laughs> is she looking at you bewildered right now? <laughs> it's like French fry fuel, right? That's what you're talking about. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, just good old diesel. <laughs> Um. So that that's interesting. That was super impressive, by the way. Just so you know. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Biofuel thing. That's cool. <laughs> so talking about buildings now. Yeah. Kelly, did I completely screw up the definition for net zero, or is there a better definition that you would kind of frame it? I try to make it as simple as possible for the majority of the people that I talk to. Okay. Um, and that basically net zero is the amount of energy that you consume, you're also regenerating that energy okay. in some method. It's like eating a burrito. So I like where this is going. <laughs> and I like to think of the burrito as... Breakfast like, burrito sounds really good. Dude, straight up, right? Yeah, okay. Oh, man. I should have brought breakfast burritos. I mean, we can still Uber Eats while we're here, right? That's funny. Yeah. So, That's the only part of Uber making money. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I like to think of a burrito as the home ecosystem so we've got the tortilla which is like your envelope your walls okay. your insulation etc then we have your windows which can be like your choice of protein we've got salsa because it heats things up <laughs> and we put it all together and when you build your burrito you want to have as tight of a burrito as possible no right. one wants to bite into a burrito and have it fall apart so you don't want any this is a good analogy i can understand this <laughs> okay i'm so hungry right now great <laughs> So, um, you know, we, we build the burrito, we have a tight burrito, and then you consume the burrito. That's energy that you've consumed. Got it. Now, we need to work off this burrito. So there are a few options that we can do. We can kind of walk it off and offset a little bit of the burrito. We can go to maybe like a yoga class or something, I don't know, easy going, where we work off about, let's say, half a burrito. Or we can... Go on an eight-hour hike and work off that entire giant burrito that you just consumed. And when you go on this giant hike, you've offset your burrito. So that is net zero burrito consumption. There you go. I like that. I think people can relate to that one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what does sleeping work off in the burrito? Like anything in particular? <laughs> Not much. <laughs> the sour cream yeah, you've added. Dang it. Yeah. <laughs> so before we get further into the details... I want to give a little background of where we've come from, and to do that, you got to go back in time.
One million years ago, humans have just tamed fire for the first time in a South African cave known as Wonderwork Cave. The fire provides heat for warmth and cooking, wards off predators, and allows migration into harsh climates. Our strongest instinct as humans is to simply survive, but at this moment, it pushes humans to thrive. To improve comfort, get better, faster, and more efficient. As humans evolved, exploration is aided on the backs of horses and the wind in our sails. Animals help increase labor output and water and wind power the simple machines that ground grain and pump water. In 100 CE, considered a toy at the time, the first steam-powered engine, the Aeoli Pile, or Hero's Engine, was the foundation for the steam-powered engines that would emerge in the 17th and 18th centuries. Convenient and cost-effective, these steam engines were fueled by coal and were soon powering locomotives, factories, farm tools, and even attached to the world's first electric generator. This gave rise to the hydroelectric plant, which generated electricity from the power of flowing rivers. By the late 1800s, oil emerges as a valuable commodity for lighting and for processing into gasoline to fuel internal combustion engines. Impeccable timing for Henry Ford, who would soon perfect the assembly line method of mass production for his Model T automobile. At the time, cars were a popular toy for wealthy men. But what you may not know is that electric cars were a rich woman's toy. They were marketed as quiet, clean, and devoid the physical exertion of a starter crank like gas vehicles. Additionally, in 1898, the world speed record in a car was set by an electric car at 39.245 miles per hour, or 62.8 kilometers per hour, and surpassed a few days later by another electric car at 65.79 miles per hour, or 105.88 kilometers per hour. In fact, by 1900, 38% of the US automobiles were powered by electricity, However, when gas cars adopted electric starters, their superior range, easy access to gasoline, and efficient mass production, thanks to Ford, quickly drove electrics out of the market. Henry Ford was a big contributor to the second industrial revolution, where advancements like his in manufacturing and production technology led to an energy usage explosion. As the cost of energy production declined, Efficient usage was no longer a concern. Like a growing organism, power sources got bigger, massive coal plants and hydroelectric dams appeared, and power lines stretched out for miles to feed the spread of the suburbs. Public concerns grew about the consequences of the Industrial Revolution, deteriorating air quality, natural areas littered with debris, and urban water supplies contaminated with dangerous impurities. On October 24, 1946, the first images of Earth are taken from space. The world now seemed much smaller, heightening our awareness of our finite resources. In early 1970, President Richard Nixon presented the House and Senate a groundbreaking 37-point message on the environment. Subsequently, the EPA was established on December 2, 1970 to conduct research, monitoring, standard setting, 
and enforcement activities to ensure environmental protection. Just three years later, American support for Israel in the Arab-Israeli war led oil-producing nations in the region to stop supplying oil to the U.S. and other Western nations. Overnight, oil prices rose 350%. This energy crisis played a key role in fueling consideration for energy consumption. President Jimmy Carter became an example of conservation by asking consumers to reduce fuel consumption. But the result of the oil conservation made daily life very difficult for many Americans. I'm in a line two hours in, I can't get gas. This is baloney. Carter doesn't get my vote next year. Waiting online for over an hour and a half, and to be the last one, you get no gas, I think it's disgusting. Tell that goddamn governor he's gonna police this goddamn gasoline situation. I will not take the blame for this thing. I will not take the crap and the harassment from these customers. Now let him police it or Around this time, technological advancements in construction introduced glass box style high rises, which became the icon of the American city. However, it and the building industry at large was increasingly a major culprit of energy consumption. To eliminate the impacts of buildings on the environment and human health, sustainable concepts were developed. The use of sunlight through passive and active strategies, photovoltaic equipment, using plants and trees for green roofs, rain gardens, and the reduction of rainwater runoff using low impact building materials. By 1993, the US Green Building Council, or USGBC, was established with a mission to promote sustainability-focused practices. However, it wasn't until 2000 that these concepts would gain legitimacy and implementation in mass when leadership in energy and environmental design, commonly known as LEED, came to market to promote environmentally conscious buildings that would in turn increase efficiency, decrease long-term costs, and provide PR benefits for businesses. Some critics suggest there were too many easy allowances granting certification without significantly reducing environmental impacts. Calls for improved guidelines have led to discussions of net zero buildings. A net zero building, in short, is a building that only uses the amount of energy that is created on site. The concept is not exactly new. The primitive huts, mud brick structures, and even early settlement homes of old were technically net zero buildings, but the sophisticated buildings and comfort forward lifestyle of today's industrial world makes it very difficult to achieve. Today, buildings are found to account for nearly 40% of global energy consumption. In response, between 2008 and 2013, researchers worldwide collaborated in a joint research program called Towards Net Zero Energy Solar Buildings in order to bring the net zero energy building concept to market viability. The objective was to develop a common understanding, a harmonized international applicable definition, design process tools, advanced building design and technology solutions, and industry guidelines. Forward-thinking architects, designers, and engineers have fully adopted these concepts and the technology and tools to execute the vision of energy efficiency and high-performance buildings. I'm telling people I am the, the doctor for building projects. 
it's funny because I actually have a doctorate, but it's not the right time to make money. <laughs> I talk about that. Amir but... Razai, an engineer, high-performance building analyst, and self-proclaimed energy data geek at Canon Design joined me to discuss how he analyzes building designs and how that analysis is utilized. I essentially take the pulse of the projects on a regular basis, and it's through the lens of mostly energy, but it's not only energy because my title says you know, high-performance building analysts. So anything that affects the performance of the building, you know, whether it's daylighting aspects of it or comfort issues in the building, uh, that's what I'm there to help people uh, on the design team. If they have questions or concerns, usually questions like how much insulation I should put in the building or what kind of glazing, it's that kind of, you know, a dynamic, that's something that I come in and help them design or make decisions uh, with informed uh, information at hand. And one of the most complex elements my answer is people. <laughs> That's the most complex part of the process. Um, of what I mean by that is, so that in the aviation uh, world, for example, when people uh, built um, airplanes, right, they test stuff out extensively and they know exactly how the building is going to operate or, or sorry, the, the plane is going to take off and land, all that stuff. Use an analogy for buildings. We design them, build them, and then we pretty much say, good luck taking off and landing, right? And who is the pilot? People with no training. <laughs> Getting the performance for the envelope and HVAC systems, that's relatively easy. But somewhat predicting how the people are going to use the building, making reasonable assumptions, and have uh, you know, a degree of uncertainty that you're comfortable with is, in my opinion, the hardest part. That can be a spectrum of you know numbers plus minus picture percentage different just because people are going to come in and mess with your building um, and use it the way they may not have intended to design. The various elements in a building provide numerous scenarios and opportunities to accomplish energy goals. The idea or the way I approach it is uh, bringing as much information comparative, I will use the word comparative, um, analysis that I, as I can to the table so that they can navigate and then see what's the best best pathway. You know, it, it, it comes in the form of the questions like, if I increase my window wall ratios, I have a lot bigger space to lose heat or gain heat. How can I mitigate for that? Then I need a bigger or better quality windows, as opposed to if I had a smaller window. And then once the project is kind of further detailed down the road, I get questions such as uh, more about like bigger piece of equipment selection. So, um, and it's usually <laughs> comes about when people are deciding money. And that's where we go back to the uh, software calculations and, we, you know, look at the uh, performance data for the chiller, for the boiler, or whatever else, that, you know, take piece of equipment, maybe, maybe the envelope question, you know, how much I, I can slash on my insulation without, you know, not being efficient enough to pass code or stuff like that. Early energy analysis and consideration makes all the difference. You're doing a project, it's a mental health project, which is very cool. It, it has a very unique sort of site uh, that has a lot of shading and, you know, it's like in the middle of like this really cool uh, healing place. And we are at very early stages of design, but so far, like, you know, that's been like a great experience because uh, I was involved very early on with the project. You know, so I looked at, you know, they were asking questions like, what if we do this, you know, this form, this shape, and they had like options that were distinctly very different. So yeah, like with that, you know, essentially it comes down to comparative analysis. So what if, if you have everything else the same, you know, your HVAC system, your envelope options, 
but you have a form that maybe you know has a little bit more self-shading features or whatnot or you know just depending on its its qualities because of its form it's you know gaining solar heat gain at a you know beneficial level you know at you know different times so we'll keep things constant and then just look at the form and shape and see how much difference that makes initiatives and technological advancements around the world have made progress in 2014 u.s carbon dioxide emissions were 10 percent below 2005 levels since 1980, the energy use of new clothes washers has declined by more than 70%. The energy use of new homes per square foot declined by nearly 20%. Industrial energy use per unit value of product is down by nearly 40%. The fuel economy of passenger vehicles has improved by more than 25%. And energy losses in our electric transmission and distribution system have declined by more than 25%. Since the moment humans discovered fire, our nature has been to improve. In fact, a common business mantra is status quo is not an option. Howard Schultz, past CEO of Starbucks, was quoted saying, any business today that embraces the status quo as an operating principle is going to be on a death march, end quote. The same applies to society. We've made promising strides, but in a short 2,000 plus years, the global population has ballooned from 190 million to 7.7 .7 billion people around the world, and it is still growing at a rate of 1.07% per year. No matter the stance on climate change, the fact is, population growth, increasing urbanization, and global industrialization will continue to stress resources worldwide. Status quo is not acceptable. To continue with more of the same is now, in essence, regression. So, uh, Kelly, what, what milestones are we looking at uh, where this net zero comes into play? I know California has a couple big ones that we're going to hit pretty soon. Right. Um, just to backtrack a little bit, since 2000, the 2008 code, the state of California has started sort of begun its march towards net zero. Right. Initially, the goal was to have net zero achieved by 2020. Also, it's also called zero energy buildings. Yeah. Uh, there's a bunch of different terminologies that we can use. Yeah. But, you know, we had the 2008 code update, then we had the 2013 code update, the 2016 code update, and our next milestone is going to be the 2019 code update, which, we which will be implemented January 1st, 2020. And this is not Oof. a net zero energy code. We were hoping to be net zero energy code by then, but it's just not going to happen. Um, in order for us to be net zero, we would have to offset all Everyone. of the systems that are currently in the homes, but we are still using gas and there's no real way to offset gas unless what, if you went to electricity. What I think is interesting, which is what you guys are doing, right? But what I think is interesting, there's a lot of, um, like you're saying, you would have been excited for the net zero piece. There's a lot of builders that are really happy that that's not there because <laughs> it's a big struggle yeah. for them to try and get there because of cost, mm -hmm. right? So I know you'll probably talk some about that too, but that's the biggest pushback, I think. I mean, because it adds so much to the bottom line, whether it's insulation or solar or all these other kind of things that they have to do, you know, one coat stucco, you know, with foam boarding and all that kind of fun stuff that they have to do to try and get there. Um, so I know there's a lot of people that are pretty happy that it's not all the way there yet because, 
they're they're concerned. They're not going to be happy once I give them their energy models. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think yeah. I think yeah. there's other builders though that have already been utilizing like tools, and so for those builders or like City Ventures, who since the beginning of time has been providing solar panels on every home as part of its standard business operation. So that's not an option that just comes when you buy a City Ventures home. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so you sort of put a law in place that says every single builder now has to put a solar panel on the home. Well, you kind of lose a competitive advantage. Mm. But at the end of the day, is it good for the environment? Absolutely. Absolutely. One thing that I like to tell my builders, though, is, um, you know, when you are designing a home or design and build a crappy house and put solar panels on it, <laughs> it's still a crappy house. It just has solar panels on it. <laughs> yeah. you know, and put so- lipstick on a pig, still a pig, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so my whole mission in life as a utilitarian environmentalist is to do the greatest good for the greatest number. Yeah. If we can improve the efficiencies of how the building operates just by a little bit, that'll help us significantly in the yeah. construction industry because then it'll just be better building science practices. Yeah. And the interesting thing I wanted to point out, you guys are talking about, uh, Kelly, how you mentioned that we haven't gotten there with gas yet, is there's this utility war, literal war right now going on between uh, electricity and gas and electricity basically trying to push gas out of the way. I have friends and uh, clients actually on both sides. And so I hear both sides of oh, electricity is trying to push us out of the way. They don't understand. And electricity is like, gas is just not budging. They won't get out of the way. And so it's it's an interesting fight that's happening right now. And to discuss kind of where that's going to go with the, uh, the net zero and, and energy savings in the future, it, it in all honesty, it sounds like it's a losing battle for gas just because... Um, Michelle, you can kind of maybe mention, uh, speak to this a little bit, but it sounds like builders are leaning more towards electricity because it's easier uh, for the actual land development part, running all of those utility lines. It's a little bit cleaner and easier for them Good point. Um, rather than having to run the gas lines and, you know, create uh, working out that system. It's, it's a lot cleaner for them if it were all electricity. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that City Ventures has done uh, is we aren't providing gas in our homes. And yeah. so when you think about our target buyer, um, you know, it's a lot of times it's first term, first time home buyers or it's move down buyers. And people are very focused on the monthly payment or the monthly uh, output that is going towards housing, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you can eliminate a gas bill, yeah, that's huge. Yeah, You know, that's 50 to $100 a month that the family's not having to pay. But the other thing too is by not putting gas in a home and and using electricity um, instead, you take out one process out of the development cycle. Yeah. You know, and the development process is timely and you have to get approvals. And so if you can say, hey, we don't need to go seek out gas meters and we don't need to wait for the inspector to come uh, make sure that the gas meters are installed properly. You've now just cut out a big portion of the development cycle. Yeah. Not to mention the cost of it, too. Exactly. So, Kelly, is uh, I don't know if you know this off the top of your head, but 
getting rid of gas and then going all electric, does your electric bill increase that much? Or is there much of a, you know, negative effect or trade off? What's there? Yeah, your electrical load calculations are just going to increase significantly because your appliances also are going to be factored into yeah. to your calculation on how much electrical use you're going to use. Yeah. And I mean, like if you, <laughs> it, it depends on your household too. It depends on if you have a six bedroom house and you only have one person living in there, that's going to be different than the same house with a fam- yeah. two families living in that household. Yeah. yeah. So it all varies. But then the idea is to potentially offset that with uh, solar right. um, and any other renewable um, uh resources that you can kind of incorporate right and uh with the folks in my generation i feel like we're all a little bit more environmentally conscious and when i go to my neighborhood's planning commissions everybody's focused on the energy consumption of the homes that are proposed to be built because they want an energy efficient building they want solar panels it's definitely something that the that's construction industry needs to... You're saying that's planning commission, right? Yes. Okay. All right. So jumping back to the milestone question, are we still on track um, for, I think, commercial was 2030, was it? Right. Uh, are we still on track for that or has that pushed back as well? You know, I'm not 100% sure. Uh, for residential, for sure, where it's there's definitely a, a pushback. Okay. And have they determined a date yet? Or no, but okay. it's definitely going to be within <laughs> the next ten years. Tying it up, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you said within the next ten years. Yes, for residential. Okay. I, wa- I wonder what something that's interesting though, right? So, like, I know they're doing electric appliances when you talk about like stoves and cooktops and those types of things, right? Like, I remember my mom. Like, I don't cook enough, but my mom, my grandma, and anybody that's like I not know, my age, I know exactly. Hates electric. <laughs> yeah. Hates it. Like, hates it because they say you can't get consistent heat or you know the temperature or yeah. whatever it is i mean like absolutely hates it so i wonder if there's going to be pushback on that well because of good there will be the in- introduction i think to induction stoves okay which will give you a more even cook okay because i mean that's like the number one complaint like you hear from people oh yeah yeah so i don't think you're seeing like again i'll point to city ventures um and what we're doing so we have all electric homes but we're not putting an electric stovetop right it's an induction cooktop Mm -hmm. and i think i've mentioned this before you're so excited about hearing that i think (laughs) i've mentioned this before my 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 brother-in-law purchased a city ventures home about a year ago okay maybe even a little more than a year ago i forget when he closed but he is a professional baker chef trained mm-hmm. at Lake Cordon Bleu mm-hmm. is in his whole career is in the kitchen. He's very passionate about cooking. And he was a little nervous about Same idea, going yeah. to an induction cooktop. Yeah. He now swears by it. Really? Swears by it to the point where Southern California Edison actually wants to interview him oh uh, and God. use him as like a spokesperson. Wow. Because he's a chef. Yeah. He understands cooking and heat and, and even cooking and that sort of thing. And he was like, you know, induction is just as good if not better than gas wow. that's interesting so uh so let's talk about process just to give some insight uh, michelle was asking me i think about this a little bit earlier but the process of uh doing a energy efficient net zero um was zero energy all the other terms <laughs> uh building basically how it works between you know uh, myself as the architect, Kelly as the energy consultant. I'll come up with the design, 
then I send it to Kelly and Kelly says you're crazy uh and most of your input um energy consultants don't necessarily change the entire design per se as long unless you completely screwed it so up. so this is something i brought up when we first like when we talked about you coming on i'm like okay so she's one of the ones where demetrius comes up with this wonderful idea as an architect and you guys smash their hopes and dreams and say that's <laughs> not going to work I mean, it's usually... Even I love murdering dreams. See? So engineer-wise, like, and that's why I look at like engineer, structural engineer, all that kind of stuff. Usually an architect comes up, and that's where the battle ensues, right? When yeah. it's like, okay, cool and pretty, but you can't really do it that way. So good architects usually have, oh, you know, oh, general... You wouldn't even throw up air quotes. Either. General <laughs> concepts of, uh, of energy efficiency, structural sure. engineering, right. uh, mechanical. Right. So they sort of get in in a ballpark. Right, but so, it's not your expertise. Correct. Right. So... Um, so then in this case, I would send it to Kelly. Kelly would review it. And unless it's like completely out of whack, um, most of the stuff that we work on, it's, you know, single home, uh, single family home for developers. Uh, so you can't do much with the site in that specific okay. instance. So she wouldn't necessarily have an input there because hands are tied for the most part. Um, unless we get to window placement and location and all of that and suggestions of kind of how that goes so well what i've been doing with a, a lot of architects nowadays is when there is a project that's in due diligence or land acquisition and they're just developing their design uh, or conceptual designs yeah they come to me and say hey we're building in irvine mm-hmm. and you this say is good the luck. Zip, zip code <laughs> what are the things that i need to know in order to incorporate into my conceptual design so oh, that we can good. get this submitted in yeah. early. So I think we, I, I actually been, have been going into conceptual design and consulting in that regard oh, okay. without actually producing energy calculations um, because I have to oversee, I oversee Title 24 MEP. Mm-hmm. And I also have to make sure that my teams in the field during construction don't fail the plans. Yeah. So I have to oversee the entire project from design to construction. And so when I, when I get the, the project in my hands during land acquisition or due diligence, I'm able to look for the synergies per Title 24, mechanical, electrical, and plumbing engineering. And then I can let you know, hey, do two by six walls here, yeah. et cetera. And uh, just for clarification, Title 24. Mm. Title point. 24, part six is California's energy code. It's basically the thing that dictates the recipe for your home. Sure. Okay. Uh, so that entitles all the electrical, the lighting, um, gas as well. Right. So you've got your envelope, which is going to be your walls, attic, your uh, windows, mm-hmm. and then you have your mechanical system. So that's your HVAC, heating, ventilation, air conditioning. And then you have your tankless or tankless. Yes. So your water heater system. Yeah. You can use tank or tankless. Um, you have your HERS inspections, which is basically a verification that, yes, you installed A, B, C, D, and it meets the exact standards per the specs. Yeah. What does HERS inspection stand for? Is that an acronym? I mean, is that an acronym? Yeah. Yes. Good question. It's a home energy rating system. And if I spill spaghetti soup all or alphabet soup all over the place feel free to ask me what yeah, acronyms yeah. Mean. so many acronyms yeah um so i would then give the plans to kelly kelly would if she hadn't already done the initial consultation um or both uh then she would give me recommendations as far as insulation 
windows either increase or more decreasing <laughs> windows um and what else what other recommendations mechanical systems okay different types of attic assembly i was gonna say as far as like when we're talking about mechanical systems because people don't really understand what that means you're you're talking about length of ducting different ways to run the ducting all that type of stuff right or having no ducting no yeah. ducting yeah because yeah, you go to that that line right the, uh, yeah it's a heat pump heat pump Basically, instead of running ducts throughout the house. Correct. Which is what people normally have. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think of ducts as like straws. Okay. When you're drinking a drink and you drink it with a straw, are you going to wash that straw after you, you're done drinking it? No. Probably not. Yeah. Are you going to clean your ducts while you're living in it? No. Exactly. Nobody does. So that's what I think about. When there I'm- are services that do that, though. There are. But yeah, nobody does. Yeah. I never even thought about so that. You, so, so what? So, <laughs> so heat pumps are like almost my favorite thing in the world. Uh, you're an odd person, just so we know. <laughs> That's why I have I'm this job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but heat pumps are great because it relies on refrigerants to run through piping. Okay. And there's an outdoor condenser, and basically right. it goes through a phase change which is a, which allows for it to either heat or cool the system. And each okay. refrigerant line runs throughout the house, which is about a two inch diameter uh, penetration throughout the home. And if you have a multi-head heat pump, which is basically a heat pump that can release a bunch of piping, um, you can have these pipings go directly to each zone or floor or room that you would like to, to condition. Yeah, so you end up with uh, sort of those wall units in each room, and they've they've come a long way with those and the design of those wall units. I want to say it's like GE's or Mitsubishi. Yeah, Yeah. Mitsubishi is the one where they they show that one where it's just like that vented unit looking thing at the top of the the wall, and then you've got one directly outside. Yeah. Yes. So there's wall mounted units, cassettes. um, You can one of those grills that you yeah. have against your ceiling. Mitsubishi has one of those as well, but there's Mitsubishi, there's okay. Carrier, sure. there's Train. I just feel like a... they're really the ones that have actually like advertised it. Right. Okay. So Interesting. I, I feel like every, I think as an energy consultant, they're all coming to me and telling me about all of their products yeah. and yeah. stuff. So yeah. it's, I feel like it's mostly the interior designers that they should be talking about yeah. so that the interior yeah. designers can tell me what they don't want. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's an aesthetic issue right now. It is definitely yeah. an aesthetic issue. Okay, but but they come a long way. Yeah, and everybody yeah. in like Asia and Europe uses it. If you yeah. go to to anywhere in she Asia, might. it's <laughs> I'm not going. I, I was trying <laughs> to Google. So, but there's in in the U.S. right now, the home builders are not using this. No. You see Starting it. To. Well, you see it in like if a home builder does a casita mm-hmm. or like a separate uh, multi gen. A multi-gen, you see what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. But in terms of just production home building, this concept is not being used. You are correct, Kelly. It's very commonplace in Europe and in Asia, um, especially in Asia where you just have uh, god-awful humidity and heat all the time. And so it would be unrealistic for you to be air conditioning your entire home. So they air condition just the room in which people are actually sitting in. Yeah. Um, at least that's my own experience staying at family who live in Bangkok, Thailand. Yeah, because it's easy to zone with a, a heat pump system, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Usually it has a thermostat within itself so that you can 
it can regulate that room. Right. And I also don't want to pigeonhole us into the wall-mounted units. <laughs> yeah. I was going to oh, say yeah. the the aesthetic yeah. I think would be would be the huge the, you yeah. know the biggest issue, right? right. Because similar to well, I see it as like two things. It's so, either aesthetic and or cost. So it's got to be or a mix of the two. Well, I think I mean? also, I'm going to throw this out there. I don't know if it's correct or not, but I think noise too, right? Isn't it louder than just having a central system through traditional air ducts and that sort of thing coming out of a traditional register that we all know and are familiar with? Absolutely. But it's, I feel like it's a nominal amount of sound though, because you have a direct air handler a, a direct blower right. right in that room but with a heat pump you can have a cassette which is the wall or sorry a cassette which is you know flush within the ceiling yeah. that's aesthetically pleasing right. it is a little bit more expensive but okay. for you know the homes that we're building yeah. our costs for each home for people like me to buy is <laughs> you know i i think should cover it <laughs> sure sure um but so there's cassettes there's there's a pancake unit where you can technically duct out from if you need to. So there's definitely different options that you can take and hmm. you don't necessarily have to stick with a wall-mounted unit. Got it. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so on the design side, there's uh, what we try to do as architects is provide sort of passive cooling options. Um, so that's taken into account uh, trying to daylight as much as possible and not requiring uh, you to turn on lights as much. Um, to have your building oriented properly to not get so much heat gain, um, which is a delicate balance of having daylighting while not having so much heat gain. Passively heating is potential where you have sort of a, um, I forget what it's called exactly, but a mass wall, essentially a thick wall that uh, when the sun hits it, it absorbs heat. So it just radiates the heat. It, yeah, it absorbs the heat and basically contains it. And then when it gets cool at night, that, that temperature transfer draws that heat out and you can warm yeah. essentially uh, the space uh, to some extent, having natural ventilation to, to cool the space so you don't have to turn the air conditioning on as much. Um, and then you go to the uh, active cooling and, and heating active system which is where kelly comes in with the mechanical electrical plumbing and uh t24 or, or energy kelly for your process what how would you explain your process and what you go, kind of go through when i send you a set of plans that's a great question so <laughs> what we do is we take a look at your plans because you've already consulted with us prior to creating the plans. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we run our own takeoffs where we re-measure out your plans and we determine all of the orientations of the windows and the walls. What If they're, if you have a two-by-six wall or a two-by-seven, two-by-four wall. Yeah. Um, and we basically take the plan as is and input it into our software or the a software and basically determine the the proposed designs energy efficiency mm -hmm. and so we take the base minimum values of what is allowed for in the state of california so for example in two by four walls we can't go below it an r13 and that's so, the insulation right right thank you <laughs> and so when we apply all of these what we call features um, to the energy modeling, it'll tell us how far off 
we are with code compliance. Mm -hmm. And so with code compliance, it's basically the state's recipe on how to build a house. And that's what we're being judged against. And how is that measured? I mean, is, is there like a certain, like, how do you know you're within code or not? So the programs or software spits out a compliance percentage okay. delta. So we're either negative percentage below score or positive. Got it. And in 2019 code, they're going to change that percentage into a score. And it's called an energy design rating, also okay. known as EDR. So then you guys usually generate sort of your proposed solutions if it's over sort of a, a menu of options that that you would then give to Michelle and say, look, this is what we can do or not do. Right. What's within your budget, basically, right? <laughs> right. And we consult with the builder too to, and developer to try to figure out what is your standard. If you're doing all electric homes, then we factor that in as well. And so... We create three different types of recipes on how to meet code compliance. Okay. okay. And then when you're going through this whole process, what has been sort of the most complex part? <laughs> when I uh, see plans that have about 45% of the walls with windows, oh, yeah. <laughs> I think that's the most difficult part for me just because, you know, when a builder has a a plan that has 15% and meets code easier than the plan that has 45%, yeah. they're at a loss like, why did this happen? Yeah. What are you doing wrong? Yeah. You know, it's... Yeah, it's your fault, right? Right, yeah. right. Yeah. I feel like when really it's Demetrius's fault. <laughs> <laughs> so having more windows is bad. bad. Well, in some climate zones. Okay. It, it's interesting to juxtapose that against our last recording with uh, Meta. Oh yeah, and the slow space movement, yeah. and the idea of kind of indoor outdoor living, and bringing the outdoors indoors, and having light, you know, in all quarters of the house. And but but when you think about it, though, like there was a really good example with that low window thing, whatever yeah. that was. Remember? Low huh? No, so uh, so meta meta our guest was explaining or showing us a window. But I agree with you. A window system where. Um, I think she had a high window as well. No, there's no high window. Oh, okay. So the so instead of having like an 18-inch window up top or something like that where the sun would bake it and hit it, they dropped the window down so it provided like light consistently, but the sun if and when barely hit that window. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't it wasn't bleeding the energy. She called See, it an ankle window, ankle so it's only like yeah. a 12-inch band yeah. of windows down at the bottom. That sounds really cute. <laughs> it was pretty no, it was super cool looking. I mean, from a design idea. No, and that makes perfect building science sense. Yeah. For most of our production builders, they won't have windows down yeah. down there typically. It's, it's an atypical detail yeah. that yeah. most people aren't used to installing. Yeah. But the way that you kind of Comp um, offset that is you have overhangs and things like that that will block out yeah. most of Shade the sun um, while still allowing light in. So, yeah, there's a lot that you can take into account to get lighting while maintaining your heat gain. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Orientation is huge. So, I mean, that has to come into it's. It, so, you have like three plans, right? Plan one, two, and three, but then when it's strewn about the community, is that where the elevations come into play? Yes, the elevations, but also when they're putting the plans into the community, it's yeah. scattered. So yeah. we have to energy model or perform energy models for each orientation each for lot. all of the plans because more yeah. times than not, 
that plan is going to be built in all four Yeah, that's that's my point. So I wonder if that's where, like, I mean, elevation probably comes into play just because of aesthetic, right? Curb, curb aesthetics. For, for our purposes, where we where we do, like, um, the production housing, huh. yeah, the elevation is more aesthetics, aesthetics. than yeah. for energy purposes. Yeah. Um, I was thinking, because that would kind of make sense, because you're going to put that plan south facing north depending on the street you know what i mean it's going to change the orientation of how that home sits it's extremely difficult for mass production housing to get to that level of detail of taking into account orientation um from an architectural sense Mm -hmm. because then you have it's basically custom homes yeah basically every lot's going to be different to treat that different orientation so you can't necessarily uh design to orientation in that condition um taking into account like the passive and uh uh, solar orientation all those components is more in a uh one-off uh type of scenario right but it's very difficult i don't know how you guys uh kelly how you do the energy for each home and in the field how that's installed that's um, what i'm saying like that becomes super complex trying to track that through how Kelly, have you guys run into issues with that and yeah. making sure it? So our method is to model with the worst performing orientation. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. And that way, when we model with the worst, then we can expect that all the other orientations will meet code compliance. So like this is the most exposed wall of the house, but as long as that wall at south facing or whatever it is performs at the desired need then it doesn't really matter what you do with that plan right but if we see that there are say 12 lots Mm -hmm. then we'll go on an orientation by orientation basis so that we can at least provide options to our our developers you mean 12 lots as in like 12 12 homes that's (laughs) not that that's not that many for you to have to to do each one right but when you get over that number it's too much to handle i just kind of arbitrarily threw out 12 because it okay. seemed like a <laughs> yeah. low number yeah, yeah, yeah. okay gotcha. feeling 12 today but when it's manageable you right. uh will focus in on each one but once it gets kind of ridiculous and you base it on the lowest performing site Right. Well, and that's why it's important to if we're able to help with the lots or plan selection during due diligence or land acquisition mm. and do a preliminary title 24 okay. that it's really helpful for our builders to be able to select, but we haven't been able to really execute that out just yet. Okay. But. You probably touched on this a little bit, but what, what are the common issues that you kind of run into? So um, some common issues that we, I mean, the number one issue that we see in the field or when construction's done and we have homeowners in it is comfort. And it takes us back to passive design, um, smarter building practices. There are key elements that we need to focus on in the building industry, and it's air leakage. We need to reduce the amount of air leakage that leaves our house. So That's just the ceiling of the house, insulation, weather weather stripping, all that type of stuff, right? And flashing, proper flashing. flashing. Um, So air sealing is kind of like the biggest factor for us because if you have a bunch of conditioned air going into the home but you have a bunch of air leakages yeah. all of that conditioned air is leak- leaving the home what's interesting about this though so like like foam we were talking on the last one about foam insulation right <laughs> yeah so you guys probably love foam insulation like the spray foam mm-hmm. like big fans i'd imagine because it seals and it's or no <laughs> so 
like well, I'll speak on. I mean, you got all you got all like, fired up about what was the other topic we were talking about? She's like, I love pumps. whatever it was. Yeah, yeah, heat pumps. <laughs> so how do you feel about foam ins- like spray foam? So I I love the idea of foam insulation. Okay. Um, my concern is that this is just from my like sure. science background is more so. Uh, we don't have chemists out in the field installing spray foam. Right. Um. And so we can't control the humidity, the temperature, okay. um, or the catalyst sure. that is being utilized to to cure the foam. Okay. But I mean, it's there is a good range though that the spray foam companies have created in order to just or mitigate those types of issues that I'm talking about. But yeah, we do we do love the. I would think the, from like an energy fit, like the ceiling, like you're talking absolutely. about, you know, air leakage, whatever it is, like that's probably one of the best sealers. Right there I mean, is right. Another great thing Which too is, is kind of in, in combatant with what we talked about with Meta, right? Because yeah. of the when she's talking about from a health standard, yeah, right. You know, there's a lot of chemicals that are in it, and she's like, you know, it's just interesting. Right, there are a lot of chemicals. I think there's like a. 48 or 72 waiting period before anybody else can enter the home after it's been right on that sounds green right but (laughs) i mean it's it's great though because within a certain density too it also becomes an air barrier yeah so it's like a a double threat with installing spray foam yeah so one of the things that jumped out to me when you were talking about the install is how you've mentioned before jason is the the level of um Skilled labor. Skilled labor. Yeah. Yeah. So, so like, not not is there necessarily a shortage in labor? There's yeah. really a shortage in skilled labor. Yeah, is, is how I tend to look at it. Yeah. Now you have this issue of installing properly and uh, trying to prevent air leakage, but you have people that don't necessarily know how to do these parts of the process. That great. Perfect analogy, right? You saw um, Armageddon. Yeah. Right. I so don't, hopefully, did you see Armageddon? I don't know. Of course, you I think everyone's seen Armageddon. Okay. Where are we going with this? So when, so when everybody's like, when the guys are all stressed out on the rocket ship, ready to take off and go to the asteroid or whatever it was, the guys like panicked, and then the super smart guy, whoever it was, is like, look, like basically, like take comfort in the fact that this thing was built by the lowest bidder. You know what I mean? And it's like, cause that's the truth, right? Yeah. So when you go back to dealing with some of these things, it's like, you're, you know, what can you pay? Unfortunately, what can you pay these guys? They're willing to do it at X. They may not be the most qualified, but there's what you can make pencil yeah you know what i mean so the skilled labor is dropping yeah but but yeah think about that like when you're flying to space it's like you're you're being strapped to the lowest bidder basically <laughs> rad that, that goes for everything in the construction industry yeah, for sure yeah it's unfortunate because then you do have that issue of air leakage because it wasn't installed properly do you guys do inspection field inspections for that Oh, we sure do. Okay. It's called the blower door test, also known as the air infiltration test. Okay. But you guys do it. Yeah. Basically, we set the home we're building at a negative 50 pascals. And so- What does that mean? It's basically um, the amount of pressure that we apply to the house to see how many air changes happen per hour within the home. Hmm. So it's like, it's, it's, it's basically just a pressure test. Exactly. Right. So if you were to fill a tire, right, like Hmm. you're looking at the type of leakage that the tire has, how good's the seal with the valve stems or everything else. Mm -hmm. So a lot of, a lot of, a lot of things do that. You know what I mean? So for really good examples, like a gas tank on like anything, you don't want to put gas in there and find out that it leaks. They pressure test it with air, make sure that it's holding. So there's nothing going on. So that's essentially what we're talking about. Exactly. Jason is more of a scientist than we knew. Yeah. The waters run deep, ladies and gentlemen. The waters run deep. <laughs> uh, 
what's one thing that you would recommend for designers, builders, um, contractors moving forward to consider or to do when uh, to have a more efficient building? That's a great question. I need like a whole hour on that. <laughs> it's definitely the proper air sealing for me and reduction of thermal bridging. So, um, and when I say thermal bridging, I mean the uh, ability, the, there's materials that allow for heat conductivity. Yeah. And the faster that material conducts heat, the less efficient your home is, whether it's heating from the inside to the outside or heat from the outside coming to the inside. So smarter building practices would be cutting that off, whether that's with a rigid foam board on the exterior, using structurally insulated panels, or that's probably my two go-tos when it comes to smarter building practices. Well, and that's what we were seeing. So like I was mentioning earlier, talking about, you know, Mm-hmm. The builders will call it one coat stucco. Yep. Yeah. And really, what it is, it's it's they're utilizing foam board, which gives you a backer, as opposed to going and doing a normal paper and lath. The paper's still there, but and then the lath is attached to mm-hmm. the foam board. But what's happening is you're just eliminating the amount of mud or the amount of cement that's put on the outside of the house. Yeah. Right. Because the the foam board is a far greater insulator than the cement. Yeah. Right. Um, so you've got that. The other thing you have too is those radiate radiant uh, sheeting panels, she, she, uh, roof sheeting. Right, yes. a lot of them are using radiant so barriers. Radiant barriers. So when you look up, when you go into a framed house, and you see what looks like foil, if you will, yeah, on the inside of those sheets, that would be one of the other things that they're right. They're and those are, you know, that's there's different types of attic assemblies sure. too to reduce the amount of heat that is trapped in your attic. So if you have your furnace up there or your blower up there, and you have ducts running through, it's in, say, 120-degree attic space. Right. But if we were to insulate against the roof sheathing, that would reduce the amount of heat that stays trapped in the attic. And then that would negate the, the need to have a radiant barrier because you have insulation against the roof right. sheathing. Right. So, like, a couple of examples of using it. And what we have to understand, the reason why the builders are using radiant sh- whatever sheeting, however, however I'm supposed to say that properly <laughs> – and I, I think I've screwed it up each time. The reason they're doing it is that that's because the lowest value that they can utilize cost-wise to get to the number they're needing to right now. Where there are some builders that, again, going back to spray foam, and I've always been such a big proponent of that, like Meritage Homes is the one that does the whole house, wraps the whole envelope in that. Mm-hmm. So the attic is actually conditioned space, which drops the amount. Uh, and they don't use the radiant barrier because they don't have to because the whole thing's conditioned space. Mm-hmm. So they can, I would assume, put less insulation around ducting, do all those other kind of things, and it's far more efficient system. But more costly yeah and you have a lot of people in the traditional sense that are against one coat stucco because they feel like it's easy to break into the house at this point you know what i mean because i've seen people (laughs) kick it in yeah you know what i mean and it's like guys like come on let's be realistic here you know what i mean right um we also don't sheathe 100 percent of our homes in california either no just structural walls that you need to do that so d can d can go over that but yeah uh, but those are the things that you'll see pretty consistently utilized in practices today so when so when people are listening to this one what does that look like It's, it's a couple of those examples yeah, so I think we have all the questions, but the last one is a little segment that we, we've started this this year uh, to learn a little bit more about our guests. Uh-oh. Uh, <laughs> I forgot to, be prep, afraid. I forgot to afraid. prep you on this, but... Um, it's okay, it'll be candid, it'll be yeah. fantastic, I'm hoping. <laughs> so this segment is called, What Was That Like?, What was it like when you were a female? 
God tee up. Was? No. (laughs) (laughs) Or what, I don't know, you have to change it to the present tense. What what is it like to be a female in your industry? Like, is your your trade pretty male-dominated? Yeah, Yeah. it is. I was just talking about construction. Yeah, it's the same as ours. I know the the field generally is. I was just wondering if, like, the the engineering side. I mean, there is a, so most of our communications happen through email or mm-hmm. I have clients that text me too. And so some of my clients I've never met in real sure. life. And I was asked to go out into the field to meet with a superintendent in his trade to provide some training. Mm-hmm. So I went out into the field and I was like, hey, I'm Kelly. And <laughs> this old superintendent dude was like, I thought, I thought you were sending a guy out yeah, here. Yeah, I thought you were a guy. <laughs> I was like, I'm your guy. <laughs> good Howdy. for you. That's good so, for you. There's little stories like that, That's I suppose. Funny. That's awesome. Yeah. But I find that it's really not that big of a deal as long as you don't make it a big deal. Talk about that because here, here's, I think it's important because we have a lot of young ladies that are coming up and, and trying to, you know pay their way and don't sometimes know how to go about doing so. So this example, when he went out and met Krusty Bob, right, <laughs> probably, which is not far from what it is, how did you win him over and what, you know, what what was that transaction like? Well, it sounds terrible to think in my head, but I kind of had to ignore sure. what he said and just do my job. Do your thing. And I, I know what I was doing. I am fully confident in referencing the code and saying, mm-hmm. no, you're wrong because of A, B, and C, or you're correct because of A, B, and C. Mm-hmm. And taking that that sexism out of the conversation mm-hmm. allows me to focus on what actually needs to be done, right. regardless of what's personally happening for him with someone in their 20s telling him what to do. Bingo. Right. right. Yeah. No, I, th- I think that's huge. And that's why I was asking that question because it, it exists, you know what I mean? It, and it definitely exists in our industry. But nine times out of 10, you know what I mean? If you go and you just show, it's like, it's not about that. I know what I'm doing and let me help you, right? In a way that's not like demasculating to them. It's mm-hmm. like, okay, cool. You know, not really a big deal as long as we don't make it a big deal, you know, but it's hard. I mean, it's it's a hard position. Right. I don't envy. I feel like and- there's going to be a hard switch in like 10 years or so i think about 15 Mm -hmm. yeah where all those people that Mm -hmm. are still gone have that hang up Mm -hmm. will just be gone and then it's just gonna switch over really quick because you have a lot of people that are in their early 50s right now yeah that are still out there that have been doing this for 20 30 40 years at this point and i think they're going to be gone in 10 but like 15 years to me is when they're going to be out 65 70 finally done with this and you're going to see a complete swing where it's kind of the normalcy yeah at that point um, you're seeing more and more, you know, lady superintendents, you know, that type of stuff, like on the job and they do a hell of a job, mm-hmm. you know, some don't do a good job, but mm-hmm. same with guys, you know what yeah. I mean? Like that's the way it is. Yeah. So I think you are going to see a big swing in that. Um, I can't speak to it on the office side nearly as much, but, um, I think there will be a big change. Yeah. I think we need to come back and I've got to figure out how to frame it for one of our episodes, but do like a, uh, gender and race diversity in the building industry episode but i gotta wrap my brain around how to do that exactly and make it make sense um for our conversations yeah that'd be great you do like a panel at some point yeah fun yeah you want to come back sure (laughs) if you're happy yeah yeah we have to decide that (laughs) 
so thank you again kelly for doing this uh really glad you came in uh kind of schooled us on some of this yeah, energy super cool. stuff yeah break break a, a lot of the stuff that's behind the walls down <laughs> i think I, I spent the whole episode just googling terms <laughs> trying to figure out what i could what value i could add to the conversation <laughs> induction stoves was really cool to yeah hear. that was a gold nugget right there yeah Thank you again to Amir Rezaei for providing his insight into high-performance building analytics. You can find out more about his firm, Canon Design, at canondesign.com. That's C-A-N-N-O-N, design.com. And to Kelly Liu for joining us. Uh, You can find out more information about her firm, EI Companies, at eicompanies.com. And thank you again for hanging out with us. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. And while you're there, please rate, like the show, and forward a link to your friend. Your support is the only way that the show grows. Don't forget to check out spacespodcast.com for more info. But before you go, next time on Spaces Podcast. So how do we make stadiums exciting for different generations, right? It's not, you know, the stadium of the future isn't going to be what we're doing right now. Just because the way that people interact with media and interact with entertainment. And so thinking about the design of a stadium for, you know, the younger generations and trying to make it exciting and that there's still a reason to come together with 70,000 other fans in one place, right? And not just watch it on your man cave, watch a game, you know, at home in your man cave, but that make the stadium such an exciting shared experience that people want to actually be there. That's what we really strive to do when we design stadiums. Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry. With Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. 
Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.